you got a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter four. That's where we're going to be. Ephesians four, scoot on down to verse 17. We're going to go and read verses 17 all the way through the end of the chapter. We're going to get all the way through Ephesians chapter four. No amens. Man, come on, guys. We're going to get all the way through. We're going to get all the way to chapter five today. Uh, The primary verses that we're going to lean into today as we unpack as a church are really going to be verses 25 through the end of the chapter. So really lean in there. That's going to be our primary ones that we pick out and unpack. And if you've been one of those people over the last month as we've been going through Ephesians, you've been like, man, when are we ever going to get to some practical stuff that I can like take home and do? Well, friend, today is the day. You're going to get a lot of don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. You're actually going to get six. Don't do this, start doing this. And here's why God said so. So hopefully you're, you put your money where your mouth is and take some notes. All right, let's read it. Start in verse 17. We'll go on down through the end of the chapter. Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus and he's talking to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, you did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, this is where we're gonna lean into today, 25 through the end. So listen close. Therefore, you, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing, they must steal no longer. They must work doing something useful with their own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as Christ forgive you. This is the word of the Lord. So the big thing that we're unpacking right here is those verses where he said, okay, stop living like Gentiles used to live which we talked about last week was Paul kind of wading into some controversial communication with them. It would be like if he walked in here and said, stop living like Americans. You're not Americans anymore. You're Christians. The way that Americans do things, and this is literally what he says, he talks about the way they think, the way their mind works, the way they operate, their, their MO, so to speak. He says, that's a stupid way of doing life, but that's not how you learn Christ. You learn Christ in a different way. And because we're not Americans anymore, because you're not Gentiles anymore, you are in Christ now. The way we do life is different. And he says, we have put off that old self that defined ourselves by the culture we were within. We've put that off and we've put on something new. And that new thing that we've put on, is actually what's been put in us and it's Jesus. And what he's getting ready to do now is to go, okay, now that we have put 
on something new because Jesus has been put into us. Here's what our life should look like on the outside so that people know that there is actually something different on the inside. And so what he's after here is a walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you scroll back up to four, verse one, this is how he turns this corner. He says, here's the big deal. Here's the call because of who you are in Christ and who Christ is, live a life, walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And there's two sides of that call. So what in the world does that mean? What's the calling to which I've been called? The call that everyone who's in Christ has received is a calling to unity and purity, calling to oneness and holiness. Those are basically the same thing. Unity is on display. The fact that we have been made one as Christ, that when Jesus died and rose for us and we put our faith in him, we're not just reconciled back to God as redeemed, saved sinners, but we are also reconciled to each other now as the body of Christ. He says, the calling that you've got is not to just live a good Christian life in isolation by yourself, but to live in unity with your fellow man, to live in unity with anybody who's in Christ and to know that the God of angel armies will be magnified as he sees his people as one on earth, despite differences, despite um, pigmentation differences, despite financial differences, despite gender differences, despite age difference. When the world sees my church be one, they will see the God I truly am. He goes from there to say, the other calling that we have is to walk in holiness. We're set apart. We're different. That's the whole reason this section that we've been in, in, we're calling it odd is good because this call that we have is to live a different kind of life. It's a calling to, to personal purity. And he lays these out as the two things that we've been uniquely called into. And today we're going to get directly into, like I told you, six kind of basic things where he's like, do this, stop doing this. These are the imperatives for what it looks like to truly live a life that is in Christ. Now there's three things I want you to notice about each of these as we walk through. And this is one of the big defining characteristics that makes Christianity different than all other major world religions when they try to give out their moral code of conduct. Because the things we're gonna talk about today, they're not vastly different than the codes of conduct for Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, or maybe even whatever religion you wanna make up. There is though a defining characteristic. And you see these in three unique things that Paul does when he lays out these things. First, all of these are focused on relationships. It is not good for you to just go and live out a good, moral, pure, holy, do right in your own eyes, life, they're in isolation in your own house. All of these things that he talks about, this is your new way of life. They're all contingent on you doing life with other people. Secondly, when he lists out these things, he doesn't just say, stop doing this, period. It's stop this, start this. Don't do this anymore, pick this back up. This is what we need to do to replace it. Because Paul knows what we know, is if you tell an addict to just, hey, stop smoking cigarettes, well, if they just stop smoking cigarettes for a little while, they're just gonna probably pick something back up and start doing X, Y, Z. Something good has to replace the bad that's pulled out. And that's what Paul is doing here. And then the last thing is all of these moral things that he talks about here, and all major world religions will agree with this. Even the atheists in the room will agree that I wanna be around people who tell the truth. The atheists in the room will agree that I don't want to be with people who get angry and start doing really bad things to people. I don't want to be around a thief. You don't have to believe in Jesus to believe those are good ideas. But what Paul does in each of these things that he lists is he shows that these are not just good ideas. These are God ideas. 
And he gives theological backing for every one of these. Now, I I want you to understand, this is where the difference is in Christianity and a lot of the major world religions where all these other ones would come in and say, he, here is the new moral way of living. Here are your new ethics. Here's how we're replacing virtue to your vices. What Paul does, and he's under the inspiration of Jesus in this moment, is he's trying to communicate that what God is after, and this is what makes God different than any other God of any other major world religion, or even just non-religion, God is not after making you a nice person. He just got through saying, put off your old self and put on your new self. He's not about making you nice. He's about making you new. Something completely different. That's why in in 2 Corinthians, he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, the old is gone, the new has come. See, he's making a point that what has happened when you become someone who is in Christ, you did not become someone who is now trying to become a better version of the rotten jacked up person you used to be so that you can get the virgins in heaven, so that you can reach nirvana, so that you can get whatever is heaven in whatever religion you're abstaining to. He says, our God is not about bad people becoming good. Our God is about dead people becoming alive. Old people being given away and new coming. And this is out of, that is the source and the power through which we're able to live this new life is because we have the raised to new life, resurrected Jesus inside of us, empowering us to live that out. And that's what makes Christianity so much different than any other form of religion. So don't, please, please hear, the reason I'm telling you this is don't treat the Christianity that you're saying I'm I'm a part of like you're a good practicing Hindu who's still a son of disobedience to use Paul's language to people who and us who we were before Christ. You're not a son of disobedience who's trying to become obedient. You're adopted, redeemed, saved, a high authority given, son and daughter of God. And it's from that that you live out this new life. So these are some of the things that he begins to walk them through. Verse 25, therefore, which is therefore you're in Christ now. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And here's why, because we are members of one another. The reason he says, don't lie. He says, don't lie. And this is, this is crazy because we don't think about telling the truth for these reasons. He says, don't lie because you're family. And the point that I believe he's trying to make here is family is built on trust. Who wants to be a part of a family where everybody's lying to each other? None of us. You don't even want to be part of a business where people are lying to you. You don't even go to work where everybody's lying to each other, let alone family. He says, this thing that we're a part of now, we are family because of the righteous, holy, perfect, pure blood of Christ. He has now made us one in him. If we are in him, so we're family. So tell the truth because every family is built on trust and trust is built on truth. So say those words, mean what you say and say what you mean. Communicate the truth even when it hurts with grace love and mercy and know that we have no right and no excuse to complain about how broken things are if we remain liars. Here's my challenge. And I know this, this seems um, like you're already doing it. Here's my challenge. Don't lie at all this week. Like really set out and intentionally don't tell a lie. Like be all the way truthful, which means now when that person goes, and again, cause we're in the South, how are you doing today? If you 
just ran out of gas on the side of the road. You got a call from your sister that said, you know, your mom just had a heart attack and your cat died the day before and like life is absolutely miserable. You can't just go, I'm okay. It's good. It's great. Bless the Lord. Like, that, like you can't be that person. You got to tell the truth. Husbands, be very careful here. Okay. <laughs> very careful. Be very careful. Approaches everything. Next thing is he goes on and he talks about anger. He says, be angry and do not sin, which that's good news. So like we actually, we have permission, even commanded to get angry. He says, be angry and do not sin. A lot of us, we like that verse right there. We like that part. Be angry and do not sin. But he has that do not sin part in there. And he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Again, he's giving theological reason. He's telling you what to do because of that. He says, and give no opportunity for the devil. This is the theological reason. Stop being angry. Let, don't let the sun go down, which is his way of saying, solve it. And here's the theological reason, because when you stay angry, you're giving Satan an opportunity to come in and mess up your life. So if this verse is true, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about anger, um, that's probably the one we're going to spend the most time on today. And here's why. We live in the age of outrage. There are things that I could say today that I could have said 20 years. Um, there's things I could say in a sermon today that I could have said 10 years ago and nobody would bat an eye. But if I say them today, I'll get canceled. We live in the age of outrage where if you had a bad experience at a restaurant, you're not just going to go tell your family, no, we don't eat there no more. You're going to get your keyboard out. Ding, 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 ding. You're going to get that bad review. And you don't just hope that none of your family ever eats there. You hope they close down. All right. <laughs> we live in the age of outrage and divides us, it divides us, divides us and divides us. So what he's saying here is there's actually a way to get angry. That's the right way to get angry. And so we've got to, we got to, as Christians, be able to learn this. What is God anger? What is righteous anger? And again, if, if there's a God way to get angry, we've got to look at how God got angry. There's a story, and again, the best place to look at where God got angry and see, okay, how, how does God do things? I think is to look at his human representation on earth as Jesus himself, God with skin and bone on. And Jesus, we see, you know, obviously there's an anger that's not sinful anger. We see Jesus going to the temple, seeing people making it harder for others to connect with God. And Jesus, he's even premeditated anger. He goes out and he just like builds a whip. And then he comes back in, he's flipping tables over and driving people out. I don't know if he like landed any of the whips, but he for sure had one, like he had a weapon, okay? There's the right way to get angry. We're actually commanded to get angry. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, if there are certain things you see and they don't cause anger in you, that's a sin. If you let things slide, if you're tolerating these things, that is a sin. Now, what do you think makes God angry? Sin. God loves the person. He loves the individual. He loves me and you. The wicked most vile sinner that you could come up in your mind right now. God still has unimaginable, prodigal, reckless love for that individual. Hates their sin with all of his heart though. And unfortunately, that sinner, because of their sin, and the fact that they have not yet placed their faith in Jesus, they are on the hook for what that sin costs. And God says, and we're gonna, I'm gonna show you the verse in a second, that his wrath is against those who are sinners outside of the Savior Jesus. And his wrath is equivalent to his anger. It's actually even used as the same word. 
Ephesians 5, 6, you can fast forward there a little bit. So we're going to get into this in a few weeks. Paul's talking um, to the Ephesian church about how they may have a propensity to be fooled by other religious teachers and other people who are, are lying about things about God. And, and then he says, let nobody deceive you with empty words for because of these things. And he, he gives a whole list. A lot of them are sexual and orientation. Well, again, I'm really looking forward to getting in chapter five. We're gonna start talking about sex stuff. So I know you guys are just chomping at the bits to hear about sexual morality and everything. So we're gonna get into chapter five, probably hit this verse next week. It'd be real fun. Um, he says, against these things, or because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, in the verse that we just read, he's talking about be angry, but don't sin. The same word that he has for wrath, and the Bible is written in Greek. The same word for wrath right here is the same Greek word for anger. I'll show you what it is. It's this word, orge. And it's derived from this verb, orago, which is a nautical term that's mean, that means to swell. And so God's anger, it implies that it's not just this sudden outburst where God sees a bad, somebody doing a bad thing and God just, just crushes them, sends lightning bolts. That's not how God is. It's intentional. It is a, not a sudden outburst. It's God's fixed, controlled, passionate feelings against sin. That's God's anger. And that is the anger he invites his children into. Intentional, fixed, not outrageous, but also not quiet, not overlooking things actually hating the things that he hates. And so to put it this way, if God hates sin, his people should too. And man, this, this, I came to this and this was convicting for me because I don't usually connect my hatred of sin and the anger I have. But if, if, if this is true, track with me on this. If God hates sin and it's what allows his anger. So the, the, again, the verse in chapter five, five, six was God's wrath. God's anger is against this sin. Then maybe that means I should be more angry about the sin I tolerate in my life. And the question that I, I found myself asking this week is how much sin, not necessarily the sins I'm committing, but the sinful things that encompass my life whether it's the things I watch on TV, the music I listen to, the jokes I stand kind of beside as people are talking, whether it's at a ball field or you know, at a grocery store or whatever, like the things that I just kind of let encompass me or even the things I know are going on, whether it's in your life or life of the church in general, how much of the sin that is around me and even the sin that is inside of me do I tolerate and how much of it do I actually hate? So my big question to you is, I'm willing to bet there's some sin around you and maybe even probably even some sin inside of you that God is saying, I hate it. And you're saying, ah, I tolerate it. It comes with the territory. I'm in sales. It's just how salesmen are. Or I'm at high school and that's just what high school is like. And, and everybody talks about their girlfriend like that. How much of it has you just gotten numb to and tolerated? See, that's what he was talking about when he was talking about how the Gentiles acted. He says, they have become numb. And we're in grave danger of that. Becoming numb so much that we just tolerate all the sin that's going around us and we don't hate it. Now, again, there's a way to hate it and speak into it that brings truth and love that doesn't make things worse. But think about it like this. 
If you go to La Perilla after lunch or, or after church today and you go get fajitas, all right? Fajitas have a distinct taste. There's just nothing like fajitas, amen? And you get those fajitas. And about 2.30, you just get that bumbling in your tummy. I mean, just something, and not a good bumbling. Like something's about to go down or out. Um, and, you've, and you vomit. You've experienced this, right? You throw something up, sorry to get graphic. Um, I'm gonna make you not want lunches soon. Um, you vomit those fajitas. And then about 3.30, I call you and I'm like, listen, I wanna bless you. Um, I know how much you love fajitas. Like, let's go to La Perilla on me. In that moment, you just, like you've been here, you, something gives you food poison and you go years without eating that thing anymore. That's the hatred to sin that I believe Paul is after. There should be this repulsion to it. The thing that we used to thought, think was delicious, that we used to long for, crave. Paul's going, I want to, ch-, and again, we talked about this last week. He's not just changing what you do. He wants to change what you want to do. He's saying, I want you to hate, but be repulsed. The idea of, 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 of gossiping about my friend, like I'm repulsed at the idea. Even when you do the sin, there's this part of you, this, not this like, oh, well, man, you know, I mess up. We're all human, but goes, oh, like I'm sick to my stomach about the sin that I committed against my coworker, my wife, my son, my kids. The thing that I did, I, I'm sick to my stomach. Maybe that's a question to lean into. When was the last time sin made you sick? Your sin. Tough one. And, and if, if it's been a while and you don't realize what it's taking from you, you, don't, you haven't fully got what it has stolen. I think one of the reasons why we're very uh, apt to not get angry in a way where we confront the sinful things we see that God hates is we are really good at doing this being peacekeepers. And we think that means I'm a peacemaker. We think because nobody got angry or there was no confrontation. Now, some of you in this room, I bumped into you a couple of times. You really like confrontation and you just go right after it. But others in the room, like that makes you sick. Like, oh, I don't want to talk to him. Like you get nervous and sick to think that you've got to go tell somebody, hey, you, um, I know you didn't know this and I, maybe it's me. Like, and you preface it with all these things and then you finally get this thing out and they're a person who loves confrontation. So they don't even hear it because you just apologize for all your things on the beginning and you thought it was good. And then they come back and they continue to walk all over you. It's because you're trying to be a peacekeeper, not a peacemaker. To be a peacemaker, you have to actually walk into some tension and some conflict. And Jesus, he gives us a way to do this. But usually we, we get it wrong. Here are, um, we'll go back to uh, this verse on this, uh, our, our passage from a guy I came across this week. And this is, oh, I love these words, sacred obligation. He said, the true peacemaker may have to assume the role of peacebreaker as a sacred obligation. Sacred obligation, I love that. Again, that's not scripture, that's a guy. But that's the case. In my, anger, in my anger, do not sin. It may mean I'm going to have to be a peacebreaker. That if things stay, quote unquote, peaceful, they won't have been healed. Here's, here, to those of you in the room who you don't like conflict, you buy this lie, and I, I'm here too. You buy this lie, that, and it sounds good. And again, it's, on, it's probably on a pillow at Marshall's over there. 
time heals all wounds. You remember that really wounded thing that, or bad thing that somebody did to you 20 years ago that fully healed because it was 20 years ago? No. If it is healed, I'll tell you why it's healed. It's not because of time. It's because it was given to Christ. See, time doesn't heal wounds. Jesus does. He says, by my stripes, by my wounds, you were healed. That was prophesied about him and it became true in him. It is only in me realizing that when I was overlooked, abandoned and ostracized by family, so was Jesus. When I was betrayed by best friends, so was Jesus. When I was misunderstood, so was Jesus. When I was betrayed, so was Jesus. It's only understand that it is through his wounds that I receive healing that I can be healed. And so if I haven't brought the tension, the conflict and the things that have caused disunity and dispeace in my family, if I haven't brought those to Jesus, then I'm, I would say sinful for expecting time to do something and worshiping time like it was Christ. Time can't do what Christ can do. Only Christ can do what Christ can do. And so I've got to give it to Christ and not expect time to just magically make it all better. So here's uh, the verse again. He says, give no opportunity to the devil. Satan loves to come in and mess with the opportunities because he knows that there's one right response to anger and there's two really bad ones. All right. So these are, this is usually how we respond to anger is these two. We either nurse it or neglect it. We nurse the anger that we have on somebody. We try to, you know, add some fuel to the fire. And you've experienced this when somebody does something wrong to you, they do something that hurts your feeling. They become in your eyes. Oftentimes they become a bad person because they did something bad to you. And now you see everything that they do through the lens of what they've done. And so you can only see more bad and you grab the more bad that they do and you lump it on the fire that you have burning against them. And it adds fuel to it and nurses that fire. And oftentimes it grows bigger and worse. This is where molehills become mountains and families, workplaces and churches. Or just equally as bad, we just neglect it. They do the really bad thing. And maybe in that moment, like our ears turn bright red. Like that's how my wife knows I'm at. If my ears turn red, if like you ever have a sit down pastor meeting with me and my ears start turning bright red, like, you know, I'm angry. I don't know what it is about me. I don't know it's because they're so big. <laughs> like they just start turning red when I'm angry and I can feel them. It's weird. You, you have those moments and all that fire is burning and you just go, I'm just gonna let time do its work. I'm just going to neglect this anger and move on. It's the equivalent of me starting a giant uncontained bonfire in my backyard and going, well, I don't wanna deal with this. I'm going to bed. I'm gonna hope the best that it'll just die out on its own. And then I wake up to the sound of sirens as my entire woods is on fire because I just neglected it and I just let it do what it, you know, a fire wants to burn. And Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a better way. I want you to navigate through it. You don't nurse it, you don't neglect it. I want you to navigate through it, which is why he said, don't let the sun go down on your anger because if there is this righteous anger, track with me on this. If there is a righteous anger, Jesus knows that the longer the time goes by where that anger isn't handled right, the more propensity it has to become sinful anger. So if I'm angry with somebody because of something they did at 9 a.m., if I can meet that anger and come in contact with that by 9 p.m., chances are the anger and that I had remained righteous anger and not sinful anger. But if I roll into day three of the thing they did at 9 a.m. two days ago, do you know what I've probably done by this point? 
sinned about 17 different times in regards to the, ang- the thing they did that hurt me. Which is why he says, don't let the sun go down. Handle it, navigate through it in the right way. He says, because when you, when you don't, you're given Satan an opportunity to take God's righteous anger and turn it into, to manipulate you, to turn it into sinful anger. The best illustration I can give you this, and I hope you realize this next time you become angry. I, as I was reading this this week and it's talked about, don't give Satan a foothold. Don't give him an opportunity in your anger. I got this image of, of, you know, you see, you see this in movies, an incredibly attractive young woman at a bar. She's there and somebody hurt her. And so she takes one shot, two shot, three shots. And she, because of what she's allowed into her becomes more vulnerable. And the predator on the other side of the room has been watching the whole time. And that is exactly what Satan does to us. He sees somebody hurt you and he sits and waits for you to nurse it or neglect it because he knows that anger, the anger that you have, I'm again, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but some of the stupidest things you've done, you did when you were angry. It has this innate ability to make you lose the ability to think rationally and to navigate. You say the things that you wish you could put back in your mouth, but you can't when you're angry because Satan knows that your anger is intoxicating. And like the intoxicating effects of alcohol, drugs, you name it, anger does the same thing. And Satan comes in and like a sexual predator, preys on our intoxication through anger to get us to do things we would never do if we weren't as vulnerable as we were because of the anger and outrage that we were feeling. He takes advantage of us in our anger. That's why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on it. And remember, when Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, he said, the Holy Spirit is going to be your guide, which to go back to the right way to get out of anger is to navigate through it. All right, so track with me on this. Go back to the, the, the metaphor I'm giving you here. It, if anger is intoxicating, again, we'll put on the same equivalent with four shots of whiskey. If it's intoxicating and you're intoxicated in anger, what's the worst thing for you to try to do? Drive, navigate. But praise God, that's what the Holy Spirit is called. And so in our anger, it's not going, Jesus, I'm, 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 it's, it's, in my anger, it's not going, I'm gonna try to finish this and do this my way. No, you, if you try to solve your anger your way, you're the equivalent of a five drinks in person going, I'm gonna drive home. You're ending up in a ditch, sir. It's going, Holy Spirit, there's no way I know what to do in this moment. I'm so angry, I cannot think straight. You said that, but then you've gone and go and made, a, made your own decision. <laughs> I can't think straight. So let me make a plan. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, we're laughing together. I've been there. No, it's going, I need time. I, and, and here's where, like, I know the verse says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Um, that is not, I, I don't believe that is a literal translation. Paul is, is speaking in terms of like, handle it fast because the longer time goes by, the more chances are. Sometimes you have to genuinely go, I've got to sleep on this. Because if, if and it's, 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 I'm giving myself time to sober up to let this anger wear off so that my mind can think 
the right thoughts so that Jesus and his wisdom and his knowledge through the power of the Holy Spirit can help me navigate through this so that he can be my designated driver from anger into reconciliation with this person. That's how we handle anger if we're in Christ. The next one that he walks through is stealing. He says, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I'm not gonna spend a ton, as much time here. This is pretty cut and dry, okay? Stop stealing. Now, you're like, oh, I'm off the hook. I, I, last thing I stole was a Snickers bar in 1983. Like, well, he's not just talking about Snickers or money or banks. He's talking about clocking out at 4.30 when you're supposed to at five. He's talking about fudging your taxes and being a little bit dishonest which is all the way dishonest. He's saying that's not yours, but you're claiming it. And again, what he's after in all of this is not, you're now a good person because you quit stealing. He doesn't even say you're a good person when you started working for yourself and getting your own money so you can provide for yourself. When do you become a good person in this verse? When you're generous. When it stops becoming about you and it starts becoming about somebody else. And that's the thing he's trying to help them understand is the way the old self does stuff and the way the new self does something. So this is the question. Who do you work for? Old self, it was me, 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 and me. And even the thing that was like, well, I'm really working for my family. It was so my family could look good so people think good about me. He said, no, the old self, it worked. It did those things just so people would know about you. The new self, why do I work? I work for God. This job this resources, the skills that he's given me to have this job, but it's all from him. And so I'm stewarding it like it's given from him and like he can take it away from me. I work for God and then I work for others. The whole reason, and this is why I, I, sometimes people come to me like, okay, help me understand like Christianity and money. Very simple in my opinion. Make as much money as you can and give away as much as you can. It's that simple. Make as much as you can. Why would, why would I, like, I don't think this idea that Christians should be poor people is right. If our call, and this is the, uh, it's so obvious in scripture that we're supposed to be generous and care for the poor. There are, there's probably no other command that is as cut and dry blanket just right there than give to the poor, protect people, help vulnerable people out and use your financial resources to do it. That's obvious. And so let the Christians be the people who have cornered the market on wealth. Because we know if they do that right, if they do that in a gospel way, then every need of the whole entire world will be met because they are the most generous people alive. And my question is, do you work? Do you make money for the sake of giving it away? So the sake of people understand that there's a God who gave himself away for me and they experience that through your financial generosity. He's saying, this is what we do. This is how we do money if we're in Christ. Next thing talks about our words. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what's good for building people up fits the occasion. Keywords there, fellas. Fits the occasion. <laughs> All right. Anybody ever said the right thing at the wrong time? Me too. All right. He says, building, we're, we're going to use our words to build people up, not to tear people down. And we're going to do it at the right time because here's why we are going to do our best with our words to give grace to those who hear. You know what grace is? Grace is a thing that you're getting that you didn't deserve to get. But grace, we've talked about this before, grace is twofold. Grace is getting the thing you didn't deserve to get, but grace is also the strength to be able to make it through what you're in. I'm gonna use my words to help build people up at that right moment. There is nothing more, I'm telling you guys, there is nothing 
more life-changing. You have no idea how God could use you to impact and change somebody's life by the power of a well-timed word of encouragement to them. And so my, my question here is this. I can't get time for that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits on the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. So here's the question. Are your words tearing people down? Are your words building people up? You know this, all right? Think about what you say to your kids. Remember, this is, I, I don't know why this is, but it is. You say the most hurtful things to the people you love the most, and so do I. We say the meanest things to the people we really care about and love more than anybody else. I, I, I still haven't figured out why that is. Maybe it's just a comfortability. Maybe it's, they're, they're close enough to her. I, I, don't, I don't know yet. But I would say start there. Before you start, like, most of you, I don't know, if you've still got a job, it's probably because you haven't been a jerk with your words at work. And they haven't fired you. But if, you're, if your spouse could fire you, would she? If your kids could fire you because of your words, would they have already? Like, think about it. Start in your inner circle and then begin to expand out to the people closest. Because there's just as much to lose with the way we use our words. Next part is 430. He says, and do not, this is kind of where all of them are heading. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So what, Paul does this. Paul zooms in and out of very practical down to earth, like A's and B's, X's and O's stuff in life. But then he zooms way back out talking about don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He does this so that we understand the only way we can all do these things is there are theological reasons. The reasons I tell the truth, the reason I don't lie, the reason that I don't get angry and sin is because I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, let me explain to you what this means. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's a passage that I think we've got to get if we're going to get what he's talking about here. And it's back in Ephesians 2.8. We've already covered it. It says, for him, that's God, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, one spirit to the Father. So what this means is when Jesus resurrected, he told the apostles, he told us in essence, when I leave, it's gonna be better because if it's just me here, then it's just me here. And the spirit of God that is inside of me is just inside of me wherever I happen to be. But if I go, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. It's gonna be in you, Peter, when you're over there. It's gonna be in you, Matthew, when you're over here. It's gonna be in you, Philip, when you're out there with the Ethiopian. It's gonna be in then my whole entire church, everywhere they go. The Holy Spirit is everywhere inside of you. So what that means is that same Holy Spirit that's inside of you is the same Holy Spirit that's inside of me. And when I do something that breaks the bond of the relationship of the church as we are members of one another, again, that was the first verse we tackled in this. If we are members of one another, the uniting and bonding characteristic that makes us one another's is not that we all go to McDonough Christian Church. What makes us one is the Holy Spirit sent from the Father, placed inside of me and placed inside of you, whose primary role and responsibility is to unify the church so that they would be one. And it grieves him. It makes the Holy Spirit mourn in agony when I allow and I let conflict, tension, and sin divide me out of the relationship that I'm supposed to have in you. It grieves him. The same way for, for if you're a parent who has more than one kids, to see division between the kids. They go, no, I want my kids to be together. So God looks down at the racism in his church and it grieves his Holy Spirit. God looks down at 
all the theological difference that we let divide us or even the, the practical difference that he lets divide us and it grieves his Holy Spirit. He's like, I, I made it really clear in my word, the things that we have to agree on. And I made it really clear the things that maybe you don't have to. All right. Do they sing hymns? No. Do they go to hell because of that? No. All right. Be unified. Don't let that divide you. Do they read from the NIV? Yes. Do they read from the KJV? No. Are they going to hell because they don't read from the KJV? No. Stop letting these things divide you. Be united. It grieves the Holy Spirit. I believe, I, I, I try my best not to ever be, prof, or I shouldn't say ever. I don't intentionally set out to be prophetic or to call the times for you. But I had a hard time as I thought about this verse this week, thinking of a time in history where the Holy Spirit may have been more grieved than he is right now at the state of his church, at the state of a nation that says it's under God. And see, you go all the way back to what we talked about being angry at the beginning. This is what you get angry about. If you know the Holy Spirit is grieved, saddened, if you know that the sins of yourself and the sins of others are grieving the Holy Spirit of God, then I begin to be someone who doesn't get angry at the racist, but I do get angry at racism. I, I don't get angry at people manipulating and oppressing people to gain more money. I don't get angry at the person who's doing that, but man, I get angry at oppression. I begin to the same way God does, hate these things because they grieve the God who gave his life for me. He says, this is the spirit that's made us one and to allow all these things that don't make us one to still be what defines us. And that's a failure on our part. He says, we put on our new self and the thing that is the most new inside of us is this new spirit, this new operating system. And I have to surrender to that so that I can be one with you. He goes on from there. He hits this kind of a rant. He just kind of lumps all anything that he has forgotten up to this point. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger. Obviously, when he hits anger here, he's talking about the bad kind. Uh, there's an anger he just told you to have. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you. And along with that, all malice. Briefly, just so you kind of get into what in the world he's talking about here. Let's talk about bitterness. How many of you have met a super bitter teenager? just bitter, just bitter. I mean, just like, I just, all they can come up with all the things that everybody's ever done to them, just super bitter teenager. I don't know a whole lot of bitter teenager, like bitter. Have you ever met a bitter person that's 65 plus? I don't mean to pick on you old people or more old people. I know I was, you can say it, but I can't. I don't know. It's double standard. Um, anybody ever met a, a, a anybody ever have a bitter grandmother, grandfather? I can recall when I recall the bitter people I've met in my life, none of them are under 20. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to pick on older people in the room, but I am trying to help if you are an older person in the room and, and young people in the room understand this too. The older you become, the more bitter you can become. And it's just a time principle. You've had more time to dwell on the things that you haven't dealt with. And so you just, it's easy for them to become sour and now you hate everybody who thinks like that. Now you hate everybody who goes to churches like that. Now you can't stand anybody who has that pigmentation in their skin because you've never dealt with the things that caused you that anger to begin with. So you become bitter. Next one is wrath. Some of your Bibles may translate that as rage. This idea of rage, it's indicating that there is something deeper below the surface. Nobody blows up, nobody explodes 
just out of this place of peace and comfort in their life. When people blow up, it's because they had dynamite that was never dealt with inside of them, of past trauma, whatever it may be. It's usually never just one little thing. It's a collection of things. He says, we don't do that. We don't blow up. So my question to you is, some of you in this room, you got some dynamite in your guts that you haven't dealt with. I pray that you would love your church family. You would love your actual family. You would love the people that you're around enough to deal with the dynamite now before it explodes. Don't let your family get caught in your shrapnel, sir, when you blow up. These explosions ruin marriages. They ruin churches. They ruin lives. Clear the bombs. Get the dynamite out. Next one he says here is, Anger, I mean, we've leaned into that a little bit. Clamor, clamor is just shouting. It's just, again, we don't do this a whole lot more in person. Like you, you'll yell at people in person, but he's more so, I would say like, this is what we do online now. I'll scream at you online. I'll get behind my keyboard and do this and I'll scream and I'll make sure everybody in the world knows my opinions on this because I'm gonna share this post every day until somebody, something changes. Clamor and slander. Slander, and you, this can't happen in the church. Slander is cherry picking all the worst things about somebody and then taking all of their bad stuff and sharing that with the world so that that's the first thing they taste of them. That's slander. I'm gonna overlook all the good that they've done. I'm gonna gonna overlook the fact that you should just make your opinion of them not based on mine. How about that? (laughs) You know what people don't need to gain an opinion on somebody else? Your opinion of them. Let them, let them figure it out. If they come to you looking for wisdom, give it to them in the most grace-filled way possible. But they're not, God isn't looking for you to go, hey, my, my call on your life is to make sure that everybody else understands the bad stuff about everybody else. That's nobody's spiritual gift. He says, all that has to be put away because that is part of your old dead self. Put that away from you, along with all malice. Malice is just, I'm intentionally trying to do something bad to you. And then he gives the solution. It's much simpler. He says, be kind. Be kind to one another. And he tells us why. He'd be, be kind and be tenderhearted. Here's why. Because God in Christ forgave you. So you can forgive them. So that when I'm tempted to be angry at them, I'm tempted to be malicious. I'm tempted to slander their, their, I'm tempted to steal from them. I'm tempted to do all these things because they did something wrong to me. I've got to remember that more so than what they did wrong to me, I've done wrong to Christ. As much as I want to crush them into dirt because of the wrath of my anger, because of what they've done to me, I have to understand that Jesus was crushed for me and I am forgiven by him. And if he can forgive me, you have not seen how much of a sinner you are yet if you're still bitter and angry with somebody else and you claim to be forgiven. You don't realize how much you've been forgiven if you're still withholding it. So he says, here's how we know that we are putting on our new self. We're quick to forgive because we realize how quick Jesus was to forgive for us. If If I was the only person that existed on planet earth from all eternity, Jesus would look at me and say, I'm quick to die for just Trent. Same way he would look down if you were the only person, all existence, the only one there. He said, I'm quick to die for them. I'm quick to make sure they get forgiven. He says, I want my church to do the same thing. So the world looks on and realizes that they are one in me and they magnify the Father because of it. This is what it looks like to be in Christ. And friends, <clears throat> this is what it looks like to be the church. And man, there's already something different about us, okay? But imagine 
a church where this is our story. Imagine a faith family where the truth is spoken in love, where people go and work, where, where men and women go and work their tails off, get promotion after promotion after promotion so that they can give more money away so that the needs of our community can be met. Imagine a church where you don't have to wonder what are their real motives behind what they just said? Because you know what they're saying is being said to you to build you up. Imagine a church where there's no slander, no malice, Every bit of anger is righteous. That's the church I wanna be a part of. That's the church I wanna lead for the next 50 years. And it's the, it's the family that I think he's building here. And I can't wait for more and more people to be a part of it. I can't wait for our love to each other to be what brings the Holy Spirit out of grief over his church in our city. pray that you meditate on this word this week and see how you would allow Jesus to bring this out of you. I know there's going to be fear involved, but what we stand on, we're getting ready to sing this. We don't stand in fear. We stand in faith. When we stand in faith, that is grounded in Christ's love. So I don't have to be afraid of asking for forgiveness. I don't have to be afraid of what I may lose if I go and care and give and release the things I've been holding on to for years. Let's pray and then let's worship. Jesus, move in our hearts. It is only by your power, your strength, your might that any of this will come to fruition. It is only by you that our old life will be fully put off and the new life will come. So move in the ways that only you can in your people. I pray for those who don't yet know you, Jesus, that they would take the invitation to receive your new life today, the new life you wanna give to them. Lead them to baptism, lead them to fully accept you. Help us not to ignore what we know you're speaking today. And be with us as we worship. Let us look around and hear us in one voice singing to the Father and let it be a foretaste of what is to come when we stand on those golden shores of heaven, united fully as one. Well, let us do everything within our power to make that happen here as it is in heaven.